Close your eyes, Josh. Take a deep breath and relax. Focus on the spot in the center of your forehead. The universe is deathless. Is deathless because having no finite self, it stays infinite. A sound man, by not advancing himself, stays the further ahead of himself. Welcome to Now Playing's Insidious Retrospective Series. There's something wrong with this place. I'm not imagining it. I can feel it. It's, it's like a sickness. Hosted by Stuart. He sees things no living person is supposed to see. Arnie. This is nothing like being dead. I know. And Marjorie. Well, the universe picked a fight with the wrong chick. not sure if you're ready to hear this yet, but unfortunately, I can't waste any time easing you into it. This movie review will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. That's fine, gentlemen. Listener discretion is advised. Today we're discussing Insidious, Chapter 2, starring... Patrick Wilson, Rose Byrne, Lynn Shea, Ty Simpkins, Barbara Hershey, and directed by James Wan. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, but you can call me Father of Death. Stuart in L.A. And Marjorie. Well, guys, I have to say, when Insidious came on our schedule, it first got there because the listeners wanted it. Stuart had slotted it in and out, and we were going to do Maniac. And honestly, I'm like, I didn't know it. I hadn't heard about it. It got lost in all the glut of ghost movies out there. Son of a bitch, if I wouldn't know it now, number one movie at the box office, 40 million, James Wan directing Fast and Furious 7. I mean, God, this thing blew up last weekend. I knew there was a cult following, but is 40 million cult? At this point, this is bigger than many of the weekend of releases we've covered. Riddick or or what have you. In this year, I would say this is one of the biggest blockbusters. I didn't think that we were signing up for that when we were going to do this little two-off here, but I knew it was popular. I knew that there was something here. People kept saying Poltergeist. That's a sweet spot for me. I did want to see it. But I don't know that I would have joined the Horde had I not been on this podcast. I might have waited for DVD. I really thought you guys were leading me into the One Direction movie based on the crowd at the theater we were in. It was full of tween girls and then like a smattering of adult couples. Families. I agree. I saw this Saturday the 14th matinee, so that probably could have had something to do with it. Maybe it would have been a little bit more adult if I'd gone with the hype and seen it on Unlucky Friday the 13th, but I, it just wasn't working for my schedule. I was on vacation, family vacation at that, with my mother. Yes, I talked my mother into going to see this, and I wasn't the only one. There was lots of teenagers, tweens, with their parents watching Insidious Chapter 2. It was just the two of us. The crowd was mixed, but it did skew younger. We went on Sunday the 15th, so none of us went for Friday the 13th. I just didn't want to face that crowd. I mean, truthfully, the last PG-13 horror film I saw in theaters opening night was Stay Alive. And I didn't realize it was PG-13, and I could barely see the screen through all the glowing cell phones. 
So I just didn't want that experience. And thankfully, thanks to Riddick, which we thought would be the bigger movie, we wanted to get our Riddick review out within a couple days of its release. And we knocked Insidious back, so that gave me the luxury of getting to see it on Sunday. And so I'm not sure how the audience was on Friday the 13th, except it was huge. This movie made over half its money on that Friday. Confession time. Part of the reason I probably wouldn't have run to the theater to see this had this not been a now-playing release, if we were doing Maniac and not Insidious Chapter 2, was that I saw James Wan's other horror haunted house movie that came out this summer, The Conjuring. And full confession time, I didn't post about it, I didn't talk about it, because I didn't like it. It was one of those movies that everyone was screaming, yay, the horror genre is saved, I loved it, you gotta see it, it's incredible. I didn't like this movie, and I didn't want to see anything like this movie after I saw that movie, and I just, it left a bad taste in my mouth. Having seen it, though, I will say this. We could have thrown it into this franchise. There are so many parallels to what we see today with Conjuring. I know I'm going to bring that up. We brought up Poltergeist a lot this past week. I think Conjuring is going to be a touching point for me, talking about Insidious Chapter 2. But no doubt, whatever I thought of it, everyone else in the world loved it. This is two movies in a row in which James Wan has grossed opening weekend $40 million. That's huge. That's good action movie numbers. That it's low-budget horror, it's mind-blowing. There's only one other director, kind of, that has pulled off the feet of two $40 million openings in the same calendar year, and that's the Wachowskis for the two Matrix sequels. Yeah, that doesn't count because, yeah, they've designed it so that both series in the franchise came out the same year. This is two separate franchises. I imagine we will do Conjuring, and I will cover more extensively my thoughts about where it aired, but yes, this is good news for James. I mean, it's actually setting him up to lead the horror genre if he wants to. He is now being given Fast and the Furious 7. Insidious Chapter 2 may be the last time he works in the franchise. He may be too big for it uh, next time they make a Chapter 3. And I do think, given these grosses, it's inevitable. We, we've got that coming. But James Wan, if he wants it, he could be the next master of horror, yes? I mean, Wes Craven's got a lot to worry about here. Oh, no. He, he has nothing to worry about because James Wan doesn't want it. He doesn't like horror. Not a horror guy. What? Yeah, he is a director... And if you look at a lot of the horror movies we've covered, up-and-coming directors need something that can be done pretty quick, pretty cheap. They work in horror. And so he did the first Saw, and I want to emphasize, he did the first Saw. Right. The other six, not him. Right. Lee Winnell stuck around as writer for the first three, but after Saw... James Wan went off. He wanted to do other things. He didn't work for a few years, but he has been stuck, as happens to so many directors who we deal with, in the horror ghetto. And he's not a horror fan, first and foremost. He's a filmmaker, and he wants to make more action-y films. He says that Insidious Chapter 2 is his last horror film because, hell, he got his ticket out. He got Fast and Furious 7. Oh, absolutely. I presumed he loved the genre because he's made so many of them. I mean, other than a Kevin Bacon Death Wish ripoff, everything he's made to this point has been horror. But, oh, I, I didn't know he was waiting for something better to come along. He certainly doesn't ever have to do it again. So, yeah, I guess we are 
covering the last James Wan horror movie then. You never know. It's I have a feeling we will be discussing James Wan again, but not in this series. No, I have a feeling that we'll be discussing him next year if schedule holds. <laughs> yes, if Arnie gets his way. Uh, yes, I think I do. And I'm more afraid of that than Chapter 3. <laughs> I think we'll be discussing that next year, too, if Blumhouse holds its sway. But... We'll talk about that. Let's get into Chapter 2. Stuart, what's the plot? Chapter 2 picks up seconds after the first Insidious revealed that Father Josh Lambert has at last been possessed by the ghostly veiled woman who's been stalking him since childhood. Now the grown man is going to be commanded to kill his family or watch his flesh wither and rot away, the unfortunate side effects resulting from hosting an evil spirit inside his body. Both wife Renee and the police suspect that Josh could be responsible for strangling Elise, the medium that helped the Lamberts resuscitate eldest child Dalton from his supernatural coma. But the evidence is inconclusive and Josh is allowed to go free. The Lamberts move in with Josh's mother Lorraine, but continue to experience strange phenomenon. Renee hears piano music coming from an empty room at all hours of the day and is beaten unconscious by a younger version of the ghost woman. Dalton also continues to have bad dreams where spooks claw at his bed sheets or whisper threats through a tin can toy telephone. Grandma Lorraine teams up with nerdy ghost hunter Specs and Tucker, as well as Carl, a mystic who helped protect Josh from evil spirits back in the 80s. Carl uses his trusty letter dice to commune with the other side, and eventually learns that Josh's veiled stalker isn't an old woman after all, but a cross-dressing serial killer named Parker Kane. Kane first came in contact with Josh while he was Lorraine's suicidal patient at a Catholic hospital, and Kane's mother, who is also dead, and helps the team by finding the bodies of Kane's female victims inside a secret compartment of his abandoned house but then decides to kill Lorraine by dropping a giant chandelier on top her. I, honestly, I'm not really sure why either Mama Kane or Parker Kane, what they want from the Lamberts, we're going to talk about it. I think it's going to involve some Viewmaster or VHS copies of The Shining or, or Psycho <laughs> to really understand where this is all coming from. But all you really need to understand for now is that the soul of good Josh has been watching all of this insidious paranormal activity from inside his prison in the further, and that much of this piano banging or tripping the security system that we've previously seen has been his attempts to warn his family of the dangers they're in by palling around with his possessed alter ego. But it's not until Carl is killed that someone finally listens to Josh, and Josh and Carl hunt down Elise, and they basically sit back and watch flashbacks in which it's explained that Parker Kane was screwed up by his mother who dressed him as a girl in childhood. Meanwhile, Renee hides her kids in the basement from evil Josh, who goes on a rampage. Dalton realizes the only hope of escaping is to get his father back in his body, so he astrally projects into the further and guides everyone back to the material world using a piece of string he tied around his waist. <laughs> um, Kane and his mother are vanquished or something, and everyone is revived and unharmed, so nobody's going to prosecute Josh <laughs> for killing anybody. And uh, even Dead Elise is beginning a second chapter of her career as a mystic by tagging along with Specs and Tucker as a ghost as credits roll. So... I just want to say, Stuart, we're both right. 
I was convinced after Insidious Part 1 that Part 2 would have to have copious ghostly flashbacks to Josh as a child, an explanation as to who Veilhead, who we now know is Parker, was. And you were thinking it was going to be more The Shining about a possessed father trying to kill his children? Hell, we were both right. But did anybody know it would be Psycho? I mean, I can't believe how well this one's going to tie into our donation series uh, with a evil mother who is, through her own manipulation, turning her child into a cross-dressing killer. I just, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of talk about here. There's a lot of other influences heavy in this. And yeah, I think that if you named a horror series, you could probably trace some route back to this series. It's I didn't find any of this original, which is funny. You guys were both right on in what's going to happen. And I think that kind of speaks to the predictability of this franchise. Quite often, I found myself sighing really loudly as they moved on to the next plot development. So I think it's funny that you guys were able to predict it. It's kind of a scrap heap of a lot of things I've seen before. But, you know, a lot of this is catch-up. My mother, who saw this with me, did not even know what Insidious was. I specifically didn't tell her anything. I was curious to see what a 71-year-old woman would make of this series coming in completely cold. And I do think she got it. I do think because we have a prologue here, and they spend a whole lot of time explaining what's happened before, even if you didn't see Chapter 1, they're going to fill you in so you know as much as any of us understand the backstory about what's going on here, starting at the Lambert House circa 1986. Did we need to see this? We have been told already in a long conversation with photographs that Josh had been visited by Elise in his youth, that he had been hypnotized, that he forgot how to astrally project. Granted, his mom is much hotter than Barbara Hershey, so maybe there's a thrill there. But I honestly ask you, is this all for the newbies, or did we gain anything by seeing the 80s? I actually am surprised your mother was able to keep up, because watching this, what I kept thinking is, really, this is chapter two. And that if you hadn't seen the first one, a lot of this could be lost on you. I think that the box office speaks to the strong video life of Insidious. This opening does stand on its own, this 80s as a nice prologue. And as far as seeing this, I'm glad we did. It's what I expected after the first one. I wanted the backstory of young Josh. I wanted to know what this ghost was that had haunted him for so many years and had possessed him. You said at the end of our last podcast, Stuart, they owe us answers. This entire movie is dedicated to giving us those answers. I really don't think this 80s prologue helps catch up the newbies so much as the scene after it where Renee is sitting in a sound... I'm sorry, police office recounting the events of the first one and then it's at best a cliff notes version that you better hang on every word if you want to keep up yeah i'm not claiming that my mom completely understood you know what i'm not claiming i completely understand the plot here i'm pretty sure that there are some things i will never understand i just think that you get the gist if you were i mean you understand that this guy is possessed that he choked this medium and that she was able to know that these characters from the 80s were the same ones that we see at the end of the last movie, at the beginning of this movie. I think that's tricky. When you're starting a sequel seconds after the last movie, that might 
be confusing for a newbie, but I think for whatever reason that we have to have this, I guess there's another reason we have the 80s thing, because there's a specific piece of videotape footage in which during his hypnosis session, Josh makes a motion to a door, it magically opens, and he says, I'll show you. This is a bit that they will come back to later. They will quote-unquote explain it later. So I suppose that's the one thing we get out of this. That and uh, another game. I got to say, Conjuring, one of the big parts of the marketing was this clapping, look in the mirror, game, hide-and-seek kind of variation. And here we got Hot and Cold with CB radios. The Hot and Cold thing... I didn't quite know what to make of it. If it was a part of The Conjuring, that makes a little bit more sense then. But I wasn't sure why they were doing that. It took me back. I hadn't thought about that game in a long time. I just feel like they're kind of repeating themselves. In fact, I even wonder, with the close proximity these two movies came out, did he write them simultaneously? Did he wake up on Monday and say, I'm going to work on Conjuring, and then on Tuesday say, eh, got to get to that Insidious 2 draft, and maybe even mixed up the pages here. But yeah, it's a little depressing having just seen Conjuring's Clap Clap, uh, to now see the hot and cold. I just is like, what's next? Laser tag? Tiddlywinks? I mean, is he just going to do this every movie? Well, let's keep in mind, Conjuring was not written by Lee Winnell. Oh, well, very interesting. I didn't realize that. And the, one of the big questions we've gotten through Facebook is, did Lee Winnell know when he was writing Insidious 1 all of this backstory? Was this all worked out to put into Insidious 2? I wondered that. That was my thing, too, because it, it was kind of like the whole Luke and Leia kissing in Star Wars thing. Did George Lucas have that pinned out where it's going to be an incestuous kiss? Well, unlike George Lucas, Lee Winnell is far more honest and said he had absolutely no clue. They don't like to think about sequels. They just want to make the best movie they can. And so everything you're hearing here was made up after the fact and retconning the hell out of part one. Yes, I just sensed it. You know, it just, it felt that way to me. And so I'll give him a break. Maybe he's a plagiarist. Maybe he didn't copy himself. <laughs> Maybe he copied The Conjuring. Certainly, James Wan being the director of both, he would have had some knowledge of what was going on. Happy coincidence, outright theft. Maybe Conjuring ripped off him. But they came there first. I don't know what else to say other than I'm feeling... In these, this starter here, I'm not learning new, any new information, and that great mood that I appreciated from the first one, it's kind of dissipated. I kind of felt they got the sequel, and then they're like, oh shit, what do we do? <laughs> you know that they wish they hadn't killed Elise. You know, yeah. I really feel, because we have this Carl, and he's like just stuck here in the background. Oh, by the way, there's Carl, another mystic, and he's got D&D dice, and he's going to help us <laughs> figure it out, because we don't have a mystic to get us through this plot in the second one. Yeah, we did We did not need Carl, I got to say here. They would have never killed Elise if they knew that they needed a mystic for part two. It's funny, but yeah, they talked about that on the set of part one, is they didn't want to have that ending. And Juan talked to Lin Shay and said, you know, there may be a sequel, and if so, we want you back. And it's Lin Shay who said, well, this is a movie about ghosts, you could bring me back that way. And Juan's like, Eureka! Let's kill you. <laughs> but you are dead right. They wanted to have that character as a way back in. But that said, I kind of like this new guy because he reminds me of... In the 80s, what Specs is today. It's like they're interning before they go off and get the real job. Well, they showed that in a flashback, though, where he was kind of doing Specs and Tucker's job. So this is what they will evolve. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I kind of liked that. 
So, but why do we need Specs and Tucker then if she has this good friend Carl? Like, what was the falling out there that she was like, I'm going to go with the new generation? They have Viewmaster? I, what was it? We can just chalk it up to sexual tension, I think. <laughs> Perhaps. I, I just feel like this is a fix it for something that was problematic. Here they are in a sequel. None of the family is equipped to have answers. We know more than Renee and the children do about what's going on. And so how is she going to learn? Yeah, there's a police investigation. I think that that maybe means that that cop is going to figure stuff out or at least prosecute Josh, but... Or at least have more than one scene. <laughs> I think he even gets a phone call in later to say that, oh, we couldn't find any link, which I got to ask, why? We do know that Josh killed Elise. However, it wasn't Josh, though. But Josh's body killed Elise. And right. what they said was the marks on Elise's neck don't match Josh's hands. Why would it not match Josh's hands? It wasn't a ghost <laughs> hand that strangled her. But if you recall, what tipped Elise off in the last of the first one was when he handed something to her and he had those old nasty hands. Oh, but I thought that was a vision. I thought she was like seeing the ghost inside, not that... He actually had nasty old hands. And when did the hands change away from being nasty because the police didn't imprint them pre-murder? I'm pretty sure that we're not supposed to think about it this hard. I'm sure that you're right. Or at least they didn't think about it that hard. No. But I didn't catch that. Okay, so if I had gone back, if this were on DVD and not watching it in the theater, I could go back and replay the scene and I would see that the actor, Patrick Wilson, had some makeup effects to his hands at some point during his confrontation with his wife no 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 with elise in the last movie in the last movie oh before she took his picture she saw nasty hands yeah like yellow fingernails and like old lady hands oh i think i thought that that it was an insert right it was just a close-up of those hands yes yes I thought those were Lynn Shays. <laughs> oh. <laughs> i was like girl needs to go out and get a penny or a manny <laughs> Well, clearly there's more to learn the more that you study this movie. And so I, I won't knock the movie for anything that I didn't understand in all of that. Okay, maybe that's it. Jumping into the body, there's a relationship here. We will learn that the evil spirit wants to turn into a shriveled old crone. But in order to keep that at bay, he must kill. Is that why he killed Lin Shay? Is that why he killed Elise? Or was Elise just going to know something that he didn't want to know? My take on it is that... He killed Elise because she knew who he was. Right. But I also think that this whole, if you kill people, your spirit won't degrade your host is a bunch of bullshit. Because okay. let's, let's talk about the root of this, this veil head whose real name is Parker. Right. And I want to make sure I got this right and I didn't misspeak. There are two different ghosts, both of which are women that would put on a veil, but only one of which is the one in the body. And that's the man. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, you got it a little a little bit twisted in the plot summary. Yeah, Veilhead is Parker, who's an old man who's killing women, and he dressed up in that black veil and would kidnap women and kill them. He, right, he them. was going by the Black Bride in the headlines. Yes. Right. No, I got all that. Okay. That's how it reads. 
The lady in the white dress is his mother who is mad that his father left. And so she decides instead of a little boy, he's a little girl, which, of course, is going to screw him up where he murders like 30 people and stuffs them in a private room in his house. More, she is forcing him to kill. But she doesn't kill anybody that we know of. She makes him go out and do the killing. So he is this gender-confused, abused boy who is forced into homicide by his mother and thus, as an adult, tries to castrate himself and then is put in a mental institution. Oh, wait, okay. Uh, I can't even tell you, like, the, the glaze of my eyes right now. Let me just back it up real far. There were two different ghosts. The one in the veil is the man and the one in the white is the mother. Yes, Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, this is why I was like, really? This is what huh? you're doing? Are we supposed to understand that in one viewing? I really, maybe that is my failing as an audience member, but I was really trying to follow this plot. I could not. I thought they were the same woman. I ha I thought that they were younger because that was actually Josh. And it was younger because it was in his body and so thus exuded a youthful ghostly woman glow. <laughs> but no, it was t it was a mother and son. Yes. I thought the mother... Oh, well, all right. I got it wrong. I'm not even going to tell you what I thought. I <laughs> thought wrong for all of this movie. And wow. Yeah. And so what we have here is Parker has always been Veilhead. You told us in the last podcast that that was really a man dressed up like a woman. They've incorporated that into the plot. So Parker was a murderous man who would wear a black wedding gown to commit his homicides, which kudos to Lee and James. I've never seen that in a horror film. We've seen everything from Morton's Fisherman, and I know what you did last summer, to the Morton Salt Girl in Urban Legends, to a creepy guy in a hat for Jeepers Creepers. We've never seen a Black Bride serial killer, so there we go. Costume checked off the list. <laughs> I know what I'm not going to be for Halloween. But you could pull it off so well with a little lipstick. <laughs> And a lot less dignity. Man, I don't know. I, I think it, you should cosplay it at Comic-Con next year. <laughs> you just want me to try it out, don't you? But Parker, now here's where you got to help me out here, both mm, of you. I don't think I can, but... I'll do my best. We're groping, right? So Parker tries to castrate himself and is put in a mental institution. Hold up. It wasn't a mental institution. It's just a hospital. Okay. But that didn't pay its light bill or clean the walls. Okay, so they're suturing the ball wounds, <laughs> and this is where Lorraine works, who is Josh's mother. I assume she's a doctor. Was it take your son to work day? Like, <laughs> oh, we gotta suture up the missing testicles. I'll have my son meet this guy. He'll love it. I mean, you would never, if that was your line of work, I would not think that you would bring in your prepubescent child to observe. I will tell the listener something. I am the son of a doctor. And I was taken on rounds many times as a prepubescent child. My father would go visit his hospitalized patients, and I was left in the hallway because it is very much against the law for me to go in with him and hear the confidential medical conversations. If you recall when I had that eye injury and I had to go to the doctor, he brought his little kid because he didn't have anyone else to watch him. But he did ask approval first. Yeah. Whereas I'll say when they go into this room and Parker is in that bed and he's not moving and everybody's walking around him, 
I swear, I thought Parker was comatose. I thought he was astrally projecting. I, I think that you were supposed to think he was comatose, Arnie. I think that was the whole goal there. That was the scare. Ooh. <laughs> and so I thought Josh's presence woke him up. But apparently, I was completely incorrect. And he just grabbed the boy. Why? Because he was young and... Parker, they did drop this line. Parker felt his youth was robbed from him by his mother. He wanted youth again. So the fact that they just happened to bring a boy close by was why he literally latched on? I have been thinking a lot about what these ghosts, with their transgender issues, might (laughs) want out of a man. I would have thought that the mother would have encouraged him to possess a woman. Yes? But maybe... And I'm extrapolating here. Maybe if indeed he always wanted to be a boy but was forced to quote-unquote play a girl, then he just chose the boy that he saw in old age as he was dying as his second chance at the life he wanted. That's it? Okay, but I want to point out that if you look at the little boy when they got to Parker and his mother's house, which I think is where that was. Yes, it was. Parker's a little boy and Dalton... Have the same haircut. (laughs) I will admit I don't pay much attention to the hairstylings of young boys in film, especially when one's dressed as a girl. (laughs) I haven't been that stunned since Ladybugs. (laughs) (laughs) But, okay, so Parker is in this hospital. Now, Stuart, he's not dying. He just is being treated for his ball wounds. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Yes, I caught that. It was a line of dialogue. He had castrated himself. It came much later. Then, like, after meeting Josh as a young boy, Josh, Parker kills himself by throwing himself out a window. And that's a way of stepping into the child. That's not, I'm going to kill myself. I can't take it anymore because I'm a serial killer. That is... Oh, well, here's the boy I always wanted to be. Let me just jump to the further, and then I'll work on creeping up on him in the photo shoots. How did he know that he could astral project, though? Mm. Do these people give off an aura? So if I'm laying here dying, I'll be able to tell who can astral project? It gives off something. I think it's stink lines, but (laughs) yes. All right, so let's just give the movie a gimme. We'll do it a favor and say that maybe Parker had a little bit of whatever Elise has, a psychic power that lets him know Josh is a projector. Okay. All right. So he jumps in and tries to take over Josh. Now, at this point, Parker's mother is nowhere involved. This is all Parker's plot to regain his youth and regain his masculinity. And the mother's probably dead. Yes, in fact, she's a thing that haunts him. Like Psycho, she's been long dead, but in his mind, she's still alive and scolding him behind a shower curtain or something. I didn't take it as in his mind because she's beating people up. Yeah, I I didn't get that she was dead, except that she ended up a ghost somehow. (laughs) The one thing we learned in this movie, because remember the last movie? Remember Lipstick Face? Demon? Yes. He's gone. The star of the last movie. You couldn't get Lipstick Face Demon back except to do the uh, atonal score again. I really do want to say how badly I missed him in this and how much the fear that the first one predicated on was based on him. I realized how little I cared about Veilhead <laughs> by having to be forced to think about Veilhead so much and, and being given these answers, I'm sure. Maybe I wouldn't have liked Lipstick head anymore if i had seen you know somebody running maybelline all over their face but (laughs) but 
I do feel like that was the best scary stuff, that the Darth Maul, whatever, was the stuff I really loved. I kept waiting this entire movie for that to return. We'll talk about at the end that it didn't return, but I wasn't convinced at any given point that he wasn't going to step into the picture at some point. I thought for sure at some point Veil Head and Lipstick Face were going to do something together. I kind of thought he might. I wouldn't have shocked me. I did think about him often because his absence was conspicuous. Yeah, I I missed him terribly, and I did not feel that, yes, Psycho and Shining and the things that they're grabbing onto here made up for his absence. Didn't they know that he was the Freddy Krueger? I mean, am I wrong to think that that was the character you'd want to see in any Insidious? Yeah, if you listened to our podcast last week, I told you you were focusing on the wrong demon. But it was the one I wanted. It's not the one I'm given. All right, I will accept the movie on its own terms. I'm just going to say it one more time. It's disappointing for me. You heard how much I liked it last week. Imagine my disappointment that it never shows up. But, oh well. Yeah, I mean, he had potential to be a great recurring character with his, you know, horse hooves and his penchant for sewing. I think he could have made it. You guys are really convinced that we're not going to be talking about him one year from tonight when we're reviewing Insidious Chapter 3? No, no, I, I, like I said, we'll talk about that as we get to the end. I think there's a tease that might mean that he's coming. I, I, I don't think they've forgotten about him. No. But the fact that they chose to focus specifically on Veilhead was curious to me. On one hand, that shows respect for the audience. I call them out. You need to give us some answers. They're working to give us some answers. But on the other hand, these weren't the characters I was interested in. I'm not sure the answers that are given really explain anything. But back to these characters, (laughs) because what I was saying is, by bringing up Lipstick Face Demon, is he was the only demon. I was saying last podcast, we don't know what these spirits are. Are they dead people? Are they demons? Are they aliens? We were never told. Now we are told that with the exception of, I suppose, the hoof demon, all the rest are dead people. Right. So Parker as Veilhead was a dead ghost, and his mother is also a dead ghost who interacts with a lot of characters here. So I don't think Parker had the psycho mother split personality thing going on. I think once he died, oh shit, mom's here too. (laughs) And he wanted out. But it never explained why the mother was haunting as well. Why was the mother taking the baby? Why did the mother slap Renee? What does anybody want here? Let's boil it down that simple. What does Kane really want here? What does Parker Kane need? Does he want to be a boy? Does he want to live a normal life? May I suggest putting aside the veil? May I suggest not (laughs) murdering people? Well, that's what he wanted. He wanted to be Josh. He wanted to be Josh as a boy, and then he couldn't be, and he just kind of hung around for two decades or three, waiting, and then when Josh went back into the further, Parker seized his chance, got into the body. All he wants is to be a normal, non-homicidal person, but he's being haunted by his mother, and, and this was a nice twist that I enjoyed in this movie, the body is rotting. Teeth are falling out. He's basically Brendelfly from the Cronenberg film because his evil spirit is in this human body. Right. I think that is a neat trick. I, I do like that there's consequences. It gives it a ticking clock. 
we need to understand why it's important for Josh to kill anybody now. He got what he wanted. Okay, you got the normal life, whatever. Yes, the ticking clock is if you don't kill by such and such a time, you're going to lose your body. And so he's killing now not because his mother tells him to or that he's a psycho, but because he just wants to stay 36 and look like Patrick Wilson. Actually, what he looks like is a poor man's Will Arnett. <laughs> and he acts like one, too, I'll, I'll say. Yeah, it's like he studied Arrested Development and said, I need to be Job. <laughs> I've seen Patrick Wilson give some good performances, but there is a cosmetic similarity with Will Warnett. I don't think he's very funny, so that's where the comparative kind of breaks down here. But I think, he, though, Will Arnett has a dry wit, and I I was getting it. We watched Arrested Development about an hour before watching this, just coincidentally. Oh, And wow. so it was very the same, because here, I think Patrick Wilson is funny in a very dry ironic way the way that will arnett plays it on arrested development okay but i want to go back to you said his mother wasn't haunting him i think she was because who was he talking to about having to kill and he knows he has to kill and leave me alone and all that who was telling him to do that Yes, if he always wanted to be normal, we have to presume that the mother had some kind of control over him, that she wanted, and, and he, again, we're talking about what people wanted, she wanted a girl because having a boy reminded her too much of the husband she hated. We're projecting, but yeah. Yes, I mean, <laughs> this is what I'm trying to get from the garble of flashbacks, is that the sight of a man, or a man that was her former lover, was so painful, she was disguising it with drag. Does that lead to homicide? I mean, like, are these explanations in any way satisfying for you guys? I know they're not for me. I'm going with it because it is an explanation. And <laughs> having come from so many horror films, I just was completely understanding the shorthand they were giving me. Is it completely satisfying? I'm not trying to overanalyze and figure out what the mother wants. This movie right. isn't about the mother. This movie is about Parker, and Parker is what he is because of the mother. The mother was crazy and forced Parker to kill. Now, where I'm going to take the next leap is I think that's still what's happening. I think no matter what Parker does, that flesh is going to rot. But I think the ghost of his mother is there, and she is still crazy and still forcing him to kill. And because she is homicidal, and again, sh this movie's not about her, it's about Parker and her effect on Parker, she's using that leverage of his rotting flesh and his desire to be human to trick him into more homicide. There is no time to contemplate any of this. When I'm watching the movie, these questions aren't bothering me. Do you know, want to know why? Because I am being dragged at lightning speeds through a series of boo, ah, yee, oh. I mean, there is no time to process what you are watching. It is literally a never-ending series of shocks and loud, loud noises. Most of them coming from a uh, baby walker. <laughs> oh, my God. Who would buy that for their children? I would smash that after one day. No, 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 no. Nobody would buy that for their children. But we would buy that for somebody else's child. That's true. <laughs> Absolutely. Maybe so. But I just think it's funny they never put the baby in it. Where did the baby go? Again, I ask. They don't want a baby in this movie. They just want to scare people with a baby jumper. That is what's so funny. They like the idea of of taunting us with things that are baby objects, but the baby itself, you know, they play a little bit like the mother ghost is going to get the baby, but does she want a baby? I mean, 
Why would we think she's going to hurt the baby? I really, seriously don't understand motivations here. And it is not a problem if you simply ascribe to the fact that you were on some kind of contraption that is going to wheel you through a series of shocks. As someone that liked the family and their dynamic last time, it's really disheartening to feel like the family unit has been obliterated here, that nobody is playing off of each other. These are all good actors, but they're all doing their own thing in various movies. They're all in their own room of a haunted house, not interacting with one another. Really, I think that they were trapped by the family dynamic they set up last time, because last time they had the three kids, and you said that you thought the baby was there to make us think that that was what the demons were after. But here... Now the movie's about adults. The last movie was about kids, but here you have an adult possessed, and he is going to try to kill other adults, by and large. Only very briefly do children ever get involved. The kids have a couple of scenes at the beginning with a tin can telephone, and it's horribly inserted at the end of the film to try to say, hey, remember these kids were important in the first movie? (laughs) But this movie isn't about the kids. The baby is in a few scenes. There's one scene when, once again, Josh's spirit is in the further, and some moobed demon goes, he wants your baby! But no, it's it's just there for the scares. But I'd say the first half hour, 45 minutes of this is a lot like that first hour of the last film. Like you mentioned, it's the scares. It's Renee again in the house hearing a piano, hearing a baby jumper. They do in this movie what they were so proud of, you said, on the last one, Stuart. There are times when the music crescendos and wah, and it's she tripped over the baby jumper. So they do do the false scares this time. They went back to that crutch. I guess that's true. I It's hard to know what's a false scare or just a disappointment. I mean, <laughs> truly, I was into the mood. What they were doing in that first hour was getting to me. I never was scared by Insidious Chapter 2. There's not one thing that they do here where I felt like, ooh, this is creepy. And afterward, I turned to my mom. I'm like, what'd you think? She's like, that was a silly movie. That was a very silly movie. Did you think that was scary? I didn't think that was scary. I'm like, no, mom, I didn't think it was scary. And the women in the bathroom, they were laughing. I'm like, yeah, but I think they were laughing because they were scared. My sense was that it was impacting people around us and they were dealing with it with laughter. Either that or... Or people don't mind throwing their money at a horror movie that makes them giggle. I really don't know, but my sense is that it was working for some of this crowd. But for me and my mom, we just, I left cold. I couldn't understand what we were supposed to think was creepy. You know, while it wasn't scary, I agree. I don't think I jumped. I think I just had a bunch of loud sighs of disgust at certain plot twists. I have to say that they should have used Mother Crane more because that bitch is crazy. Her face, the way she could scream, I thought she did a really good job in like the two scenes we had her. And she was really kind of creepy in that white dress and I wish they would have used her more instead of the veil head. I will go against what you two are saying. During some of those piano scenes and things, I'll never say I got scared. I never jumped. But it was starting me down the path. I was getting a little creeped out. That's the furthest this movie ever took me, is the scene was when Dalton is going to sleep and Renee is putting him in bed, and then he goes, there's someone behind you. And that kind of gave me an, I see dead people, kind of flashback, and I'm like, who's behind her? And there's the 
voice in the closet who's grabbed the telephone and saying, I'm not your brother. Those moments started to creep me out. Had they continued to play those and escalate those, I think it really would have worked. What kills it for me is that we've got a parallel storyline. We've got the Lambert family in this house, and they've conveniently had to go stay with their mother's house, which just happens to be the same set that all the child scenes are going on. But outside of that house, we have Lorraine, Specs, and Tucker teaming up with that guy who pissed you off so much, Stuart, Carl, to explain all this to us. And they're going through a Nancy Drew mystery, guided every step of the way by Mother Parker. But what's the <laughs> point of all that? I don't understand why she wants to even tell them that. Wouldn't she just kill them? It is about the games. I'm here to tell you. They didn't write a script. They said, you know what would be creepy? You roll dice and it forms words. You know what would be creepy? You have that old tin can game and what's whispering on the other end isn't the person on the other end of the string. Or we play hot and cold with CB radios. They thought of it in terms of traps. And I complimented this movie because I like the individual kind of scare conceptions. I think Juan excels at this all the way back to Saw. You can see him doing this. Here, he's caught in his own trap. He's doing the same thing too many times, and it's blowing up in his face, becoming self-parody, really. I don't think that there's a story here to be told. Yes, there's a backstory here to be told. We'll find out who Veilhead and this other chick are, but we'll never understand why these ghosts are attacking this family or what this family is going to do about it. I mean, they're really wimpy. Renee is just, she knows better. She saw the photograph. She heard the police testimony. She knows her husband is possessed, and yet she's still going to be slapped around and wait around and play a damsel in distress all the way to the silly climax. That's the first complaint I'll really give you, is her not questioning more what she sees on that camera and knowing her husband is the murderer. I mean, yes... The way she plays it is she's relieved the forensics don't match up, but I never quite understand why Rose Byrne is so trusting throughout this whole damn movie. But I'll tell you, I'm enjoying this backstory, and I really like when the whole thing comes to a head. I figured it out way too early, though. I'm sorry to say this movie, it isn't very smart. (laughs) I heard the piano and I saw what was going on, I knew that the ghost haunting them, that's the twist, was this time a benevolent ghost, a friendly ghost, not Casper, but Josh. Yeah, can we talk about this? (laughs) How does this even, did he go back in time to the previous movie? Why is he creating scares that already happened to them in another house? How is he creating, not why, (laughs) but how? Okay, uh, I I think I have this figured out. All right, wait a second, though. I just want to point out something before you delve into this twisted, twisted timeline. Is we had the same problem with Saw, Arnie. The timeline in Saw is absolutely ridiculous. You know, I didn't do any Saw sequels. My frame of reference was Back to the Future 2, where they had the cast. Wouldn't it be so clever if the cast revisits the scares that didn't make any sense from the last film, and they're the ones doing it? You know, I it it seems too clever by half. I didn't buy this at all. I, I I thought it was a really lame way to try and tie back into the original movie and just reminding me that they don't have any story here to tell. There was no reason to go in this direction for the sequel. Or it was just really cheap to use the footage again. (laughs) I liked this. When you said Saw, Marjorie, that makes a whole lot of sense there, because they did this exact same thing with Saw. But 
I was thinking Back to the Future 2, and I was kind of enjoying the way that this layered on top. Now, Josh isn't going back in time to scare them in the past. What's happened is Josh is in the present following them, trying to warn them through this horrible, horrible song that Renee wrote that Josh isn't Josh. He's trying to communicate with them. It isn't until the climax of the film that he starts time traveling. Yeah, because he goes back and sets the front door alarm off. But he sets the front door alarm off because we get to see now the other side. Again, the Back to the Future 2 moment where he's now outside the house when we see that creepy ghost who is walking past the nursery and then suddenly appears inside. He's now protecting his own family from the ghosts. But how does that make sense? Yeah, I don't understand. That happened months ago. He's traveling through time in the further. (laughs) No one ever mentioned that could happen, though. I didn't see him get in the DeLorean, and you know what? Calling back Back to the Future 2 shouldn't be a good thing. You hated that movie, and I wasn't a fan. No, no, I I did hate that movie, but that was because it was so sweaty and loud. But I like the concept of the going back to your first movie and seeing it from another perspective and interacting with it, and that kind of gave me some jollies here. I'm grasping on where they can. But why did they want the baby? I don't think they did. I think the one creepy homeless-looking ghost wanted the baby. The stalking man? Yeah. Oh, the stringy-haired man. The fiend. Okay. But I don't think the baby was part of this. What was happening is Josh had to go back, guided by Tucker and Elise. They ran into Elise in the further. I mean, we didn't just have Lin Shea as a really bad overdub in the flashback scenes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that was a really bad overdub. Really bad. Really, really noticeably bad lips not syncing with sound. <laughs> like to the point that they seem to try to hide the actress's lips for three quarters of the dialogue. <laughs> We're going to do close-ups of the eyes now. <laughs> couldn't they literally just, couldn't she just do a voice? I would have believed it. I mean, I don't think it had to be close in order for me to buy it. I'm wondering if that actress like just had this weird, squeaky, like Maybe Joey was- Lauren Adams yeah. voice. Like, you would never believe that turned into Elise, but... So, Elise helps him go back because they need to find where Parker lives to stop the ghost. Why? They're creating the rules of their ghostly universe. Yes. Making it up as they go along is, I believe, what it's called. Yes. Yes, that's That's what they're doing. It feels very soap opera in that way. It reminds me, actually, at this point, I'm thinking about... A lot about the reasons why I stopped watching American Horror Story, which is, you know, an anthology cable horror TV series that, you know, you get caught up in the storyline for the first four or five episodes. You're like, this is intriguing. And by episode 10 or 11, you realize this is not going to tie together. This is just how do we write ourselves to the next scare? I, I really resent the fact that I've been trying to make these connections when they're so loose and half-assed. And I'm having a good time. It's turning into an action film. I mean, there's Parker in Josh's body is now finally full-on homicide. And yes, you wanted your shining moment. You literally get it when he's trying to break through a door. I expected, here's Joshy! Yeah, I know. Give me the bat, Wendy. It wasn't uh, a happy surprise to see them go this close to it, but was he really going to hurt them? Did you get the sense that he was moving towards that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I... I I think he was, but he was taking his own damn sweet time. He had already killed Carl, or so we're supposed to think. That's why Carl's in the further. And I kind of thought he killed Specs, too. 
And so I'm like, my thought at this point is, even if Josh's spirit gets back in Josh's body, Josh is going up. He's going to be, like, fried. They better not be in a death penalty state. Yeah, you're talking about the climax of the film where everyone is now his prisoner. He's locked his mom in the bathroom, and he's knocked out all three ghost hunters. Yeah, I get that. But for the first hour of this movie, when he knows what he has to do is kill in order to stay youthful, he's not trying very hard. He's playing with the kids, he's laughing, he's got the can out. Like, what is preventing you right now from getting the hammer and going bang, 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 bang? I don't think Parker is murderous. Parker never wanted to hurt anybody. His mother forces him to. We don't even see the tooth fall out for the first half hour, by the way. He thinks he can live this normal life until that tooth falls out. Then there's 15 to 20 minutes, maybe a half hour, of his mother saying, you're going to have to kill, and he's, like, resisting it. When he went out to work that day and then came home and was playing with the kids, I was wondering if we'd find out later on he went out and killed somebody. At no point did I think Josh was Norman Bates. At no point, even though they're obviously playing off Psycho and the mother dynamic, I did not see him as a tortured person that didn't want to kill. The real good Josh is not trapped in that body trying to fight the evil forces that are inside of him. He is completely removed from his body in the further. The person entirely in that body is, yeah, Cain. And so I just don't understand. He's killed 12 women against his will. That's what we're supposed to think. She wanted him to put the women in the shrouds and stuff them into the wall. Why would she want him to do that? Because she's crazy. But yeah, that is it. Is She is making him do that. Because when, for reasons I don't understand. Yeah. Okay. Tu- well, no, no, no. Specs, Tucker, and Carl go to Parker's old house and they actually see ghosts there. Why ghosts happen to be there when there's no astral projection? I don't know. Well, ghosts can exist without astral projection, though. Can they? Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, they exist, but they don't manifest unless there's a host, right? No. Not no, at all. No, no. Renee's not a host, and she's been slapped around by this point. But that's because her house was home to the poltergeists because her son was astrally projecting, and he was a magnet to them. I don't know, Arnie. Yeah. I can't tell you what the rules are. I didn't get the book. I don't know that the book was written. <laughs> but whatever the rules are, I, that was the least of my problems, that the ghosts were interacting with Barbara Hershey and the nerd. Okay, well, because this movie is about making the rules, mm-hmm. that bothered okay. me. Wait, what do you mean it's about making the rules? This whole movie <laughs> is explaining the rules. No, it's not. Because me and Stuart just disagreed with what you said, so I think it's doing a piss-poor job at it. <laughs> it's not explaining anything. No. It's about explaining why you're watching a series of shocks. I don't think that if it's trying to be coherent, it's done a horrible horrible job. I mean, case in point, let me just walk through this. Yes. What has led them to that house? I thought it was the mother. I thought so too. They found the medical records. They went into this hospital that was abandoned. But the mother has been the one going through the dice this whole time. No, Elise was the first person on the dice. How do you know? Because she gave them good information. She said who killed her and to go to Our Lady Angles. Don't you think the ghosts talk and like they could lie? That was Elise? That, I take that that was Elise. Because later they go, you're not Elise. And a chandelier tries to kill them. That's later on when the dice get weird. This is pathetic. <laughs> this is a shit script. I cannot believe that I'm sitting here trying to parse out the kernels of food from the mounds of shit that are being dumped on me. 
There's nothing nutritious here. This is ridiculous that I have to do this much work. It's not my fault that I didn't understand this. And Marjorie, I don't think it's your fault either. This is shit riding. Okay, I'm just going to say maybe I was getting it because I was enjoying myself. I like mythologies. But they didn't establish any mythology. That's what we're trying to tell you. No, I'm telling you they did, and you guys just weren't into it, and so you weren't listening. Are you sure you're right? You're I am saying that. I, I, I am putting this out there in front of tens of thousands of listeners. No. None of whom are shy about telling me when I'm <laughs> wrong. <laughs> and granted, and I'm not telling you you're wrong. I'm just saying, why are you so confident you know what the hell is going on? Because at any given situation, it could be something else. Next movie, they could be, oh, it wasn't the mother at all. It was the long lost father or the cousin Ernie or whatever. <laughs> I, they're just making it up to whenever it's convenient. And they will change the rules, retcon as needed when they decide they want to work in the tiddlywinks and the pogo stick. I mean, I just think that this has really shown its hand here as being a very empty ghost story. That we are doing this much work to try and even understand what we're watching is on them. It's not on me. It is not on me. I am trying like hell to understand what's going on here. Why would we know that it was at least at first and later the mother dropping the chandelier? Why would we know that? All right. Maybe I'm wrong on that one. I think ghosts can lie, Arnie. I'll throw that out there. This is what I took off the movie is that because they were getting good information at first that it was Elise. And then when they started getting shady, cryptic information that led them into death traps, that it was the mother. But maybe it was the mother leading there all along because she's just kind of crazy. And how is Elise doing this? Like, how does she commune with the dice? Because I'm thinking, Josh, stop banging on the piano. Why don't you go tell him in the dice? Hey, I'm really a drag queen that wants to kill you. I mean, come on. Let, let's stop this. This is a fictional script. I'm not going to try to go and have okay. a birther conversation with you. I just have one question, then. Maybe we can move on from the shit script. What's with all the transgendered stuff in these movies? I think that they got into a bind. I literally think in the first one, they just thought it was creepy that a man would dress as an old hag. And then they're like, well, we have to explain that. And then they were like, well, why don't we look at Psycho and some other things? And it's just tied into a knot. Arnie, I applaud you for pulling this out. I think you're close to right. I think you're as close to understanding this as any of the three of us. But I don't think that this comes out to be a linear, understandable story. I think that they've flipped and flopped and gotten wishy-washy, depending on however they wanted to play. And I think they're clever. And I'm applauding them for being clever. Wow. Okay. That's one thing that I would never call this movie. I think that <laughs> they sat there and they looked with a fine-tooth comb at the first one. And they realized, I mean, these guys, come on, even in Saw and in this series, there's a lot of bullshit. Why did the security system go off? What was that? It was never explained. What was this weird, homeless, scraggly-haired ghost that came through the window? It was never explained. They go back and they're like, you know what? We have some holes here that we can fill in this time. Okay, but let me just say something. They didn't have to explain those. They could have just ex left it as scary shit, and I would have been much better with it. It's when you try to add all of this stupid explanation that ends up being so unfulfilling that it just all goes out the window, and you're like, Fuck it, I'm done. That's right, Marjorie. It is what killed Twin Peaks. Yeah, I was just about to go there. David Lynch rule. When you don't tell us, it's scary. When you have your second season and the suits are telling you you have to explain who killed Laura Palmer, that's when it goes to hell. But what worked for me in the first 
half of this movie was the Josh ghost. What works for me in the second half of the movie is that ticking clock. The fact that Parker in Josh's body is going to kill people and the movie lies to you. It makes me think he has quite a body count. I was surprised. I'm like, the last movie had a body count of one, Elise, and that was pretty early on. Here, man, he's killed two people minimum, and there's going to be so many more before this is through. It lies to you. This has a body count of zero. Zero. And that kind of pissed me off. Because you see bodies. You see ghosts from bodies. Oh, I feel your heart. You're still alive. Yeah. I mean, who isn't? Yeah. Just derisively. If I had bought popcorn, I would be throwing at the screen that she's like, oh, when I hugged you, I noticed you still had a pulse. You're not dead. But it's his spirit. Why does his spirit have a pulse? Why wouldn't you mention that earlier? I just, uh, I don't, I don't want to ask why anymore. I want to ask when. When are we done talking about this? So, of course, everything gets resolved. I, the, again, the thing about this movie is it telegraphed itself way too much. I knew Parker was the little boy girl. I knew that little girl who says, yes. my mother will make me kill you was a boy. It was obvious, right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. was anyone fooled by, we all saw that. Mm-hmm. Like, even if I didn't have psycho knowledge, it did not look like a girl. No. It did not look like a girl. Yeah. And the fact that Tucker's like, this is a boy's room. I had that dollhouse. I mean, I knew Josh was the ghost. I knew Josh's body was possessed. The only thing I didn't realize was that this old man would play into it. But the rest of it all came together. And I knew from the opening prologue that we were going to travel back in time and old Josh was going to interact with young Josh. I knew that before they showed that photo. And once they showed that photo, well, let's just get there instead of waiting an hour in between. Because you see the photo of old Josh standing next to young Josh. So that is where the climax will be. Now, why old Josh's spirit hammering a toy piano over the spirit of Parker's mother causes Parker's spirit to leave Josh's body? I don't know. Because they didn't want to kill anything. This is PG-13, and this is where they could have had some grotesque special effects. But yeah, it's just, it's vanquished. It's over. Yeah, and I definitely felt that PG-13. So many times, Stuart, you hold up. Poltergeist is PG. PG PG-13 horror doesn't have to suck. Well, it doesn't have to, but it more than often does. Mm -hmm. We got burned on that Stay Alive movie, and we haven't seen one till now. Drag me to hell. I mean, there's oh. there's good examples here. I'm certainly not going to use this as a referendum on it. This wasn't scary. This felt like it was made for the tween crowd. To be just scary enough and safe where their parents would let them go. Yeah, and it really bothered me. Last movie, I complained about how when they were in the further, they kept giving us flashbacks to those colorings that were on the wall. Well, this movie, I had the problem of Elise is now watching as an old spirit, her young self, do this, and she goes, so that's what that was about. You didn't need to say that out loud, bitch. We know. I think that was just a laugh line. So yes, I'm a little bit unsatisfied with the resolution of how the spirit gets sucked out of Josh's body. I'm really understanding it's obligatory that little Dalton ties that tin can around his waist like it's a rappel line. Or like Joe Beth Williams and Poltergeist. Good point. Well, I think the problem lies, and you said let's talk about Dalton, is the fact that as a kid who can astrally project and bring spirits with him, he has zero personality. 
He has nothing. The little girl from Poltergeist, you just look at her and she used to just scare me anyway. Because she was just creepy and she had that perfect creepy voice. They're here. It was great. This kid's got nothing going for him. He's not otherworldly. I think he's charming. I think he might work on a sitcom or a soup commercial. <laughs> but I agree. When I look at him, I don't get the sense that he's haunted or that he's in touch with things in this world that we are not. I, there's nothing mystical about the kid. There's nothing paranormal or it just doesn't work in that way. He's also given absolutely nothing to do. The whole movie last time was about how do we get Dalton back. Now that he's back, they send him to the babysitter. He's been out of the coma one day and he's going back to school and going to the babysitter and no one is even taking him to the doctor to check him up for what his body might be in the condition. I mean, okay, so you just don't even care about the characters. I think that's what I resent because I actually liked this family last time and now I just sense how much we aren't supposed to care about really any of them. I think we're supposed to care about the adults, but the children, yeah, I was surprised that the boys came back home because there's the scene where they actually take the baby to a babysitter so that it is safe. And I thought that the two older boys were also gone someplace safe. So when they come back home in the middle of the climax... <laughs> a la Poltergeist, when Dana, the older daughter, comes home in the first one in the middle of the climax. If Josh actually killed Foster, that middle kid, would anyone notice? <laughs> I, I forgot mean, his really? name until now. <laughs> Poor Foster. I just don't think that these things are defensible. I, I'm surprised that you're giving it the pass that you are here, Arnie. I, this is shambles. Everything that I thought was working, the thing that you mildly didn't recommend last time, I just think it's in tatters by this climax. It's just on the ground burning. Like the last movie, I think the climax is the weakest part here, especially the very end, when you bring Dalton back into it as more than bait. I actually liked the two kids as bait. You don't want to see them killed. You don't necessarily like them either. You don't want to have them in for cookies, but you don't want to see them slaughtered. But once he's like, I can rescue daddy. I have to go to sleep. All right. I was taken back to Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, because at one point, the protagonist in that, John, is like, you got to get me to sleep. You got to lay me out. And they hit him upside the head with a two by four to concuss him so he can go to the dream world. How when your father is banging <laughs> on the door to kill you, do you go nap time? Nighty night. Well, he went in the dark corner. <laughs> Man, I wouldn't take a nap for nothing when I was a kid. You couldn't get me to lay down. If you had sedated me, I wouldn't do it. But this is, yeah, it's all kinds of ridiculous. So he's like, okay, I'm just going to do this now and bye. And, you know, it's a reverse of the last time. If the father went to go rescue the son, now the son's going to rescue the father. If they wanted to do that, that should have been the whole movie. They should have figured out by the halfway point what Josh was, gotten away from him, just like they left the house the last time, and the second half of the movie could be about finding the real Josh in the further. But the fact that they're trying to, all the way into the end, have the family not realize that Josh wants to kill them, and yeah, this is this is just awful. And I still think there's some PG-13 pulling back here. I mean, Carl brought a freaking hypodermic needle full of knockout drugs how perfect would it have been is if you had to get renee to inject her son with this medicine and hope the dosage is right and hope it doesn't kill him 
so that he can go save his father. That would have, again, given it suspense, given it stakes. I think in this movie, they don't want to legitimately put anybody under the age of 30 in danger. I think you're right. And to me, every time they use Carl, I thought it should have been Dalton. And now you've explained why they didn't. Because I'm like, yeah, the kids could have gone in the mystical world. The kid could have given you some of these explanations. The kid could have been involved earlier with talking with his real father and finding him. Shit, in Goonies, the kids figured out the mystery. Why not have the kids going to this hospital and figuring it out? Why Spence and Tucker? Well, because I think you answered it. They know that kids are watching this and they don't want to put children in jeopardy i guess they just don't understand i loved that as a kid i loved it when jason Voorhees chased Corey feldman i loved it when carol ann was sucked into the closet i i like to see people my own age in jeopardy it made it more exciting but here yeah forgive the pun but kid gloves they really treat these children softly they never really put them in any kind of scary moment even as the dad's busting in there i just don't get the sense that he's going to go for them i think he's going to go for renee but I'll say the movie did a good job of fooling me because when I saw Carl dead and when I saw Tucker, who may or may not be dead, and I thought we'd actually have that conversation, did Tucker live? And there's a moment where you hear him snore, but it's really subtle. So I wasn't quite sure what they were trying to tell us. During all these scenes, I think Josh is going to have a hell of a body count. I think you're right. It's an optical illusion that they're wanting the horror audience to think that everyone's dying here when, yeah, look back at the bleary train ride and see where we've gone, and it's absolutely nowhere. Nothing has changed. And then at the very end, Josh is back, Dalton's back, so they're going to do what worked so well the first time for Josh and hypnotize themselves to forget they have the ability to astral project. Which, Stuart, you hypothesized is what made Josh a dick in the first place. <laughs> yeah, and given that they're going to make a sequel, does anyone think it'll stick? I don't know. That's really the question here, is are we done with the Lamberts at the write-up here? They could. They certainly have set themselves up with the epilogue with dealing with an entirely new family dynamic. But is this it? We know James Wan's probably not coming back. Is Patrick Wilson, is Rose Byrne, is Ty Simpkin, are these Lambert characters done? Or have they forgotten? I took this as they're closing the book on the Lambert story. And when we did Poltergeist, I don't remember if it was two or three, Stuart, you said, why do we have to keep coming back to this family? Why can't it just be Tangina going off and finding new ghosts? Well, I've never been entirely convinced there aren't a few people in Hollywood listening here. And I think one of them went, yes, that's what the series should have been is Tangina and the ghosts. And so we're going to have our connecting characters be the ghost of Elise, as well as Specs and Tucker. Specs writing himself an eternal acting career in case he <laughs> wants it. Yes. I noticed how his part got bigger this time. Yes. <laughs> and the Lamberts, though, are done. Come on. Rose Byrne and Patrick Wilson. They don't need to be doing parts four, five, and six of a horror film. So I think that when, not if, but when Insidious Part 3 comes out, there will be three returning characters, Lynn Shay, Lee Winnell, and Angus Sampson, and it will be a new story revolving around this catatonic wheelchair-bound girl and whatever's haunting her. I mean, I think that... There have been enough of these anthology horror series with loose ties together to say that that will work for this. People aren't there for the Lamberts. They're there for the ghosts. 
But is this the Tokyo Drift chapter? Will they go back to the Lamberts in a couple sequels? Uh, I'm not convinced that we're totally done with this family. I agree with you. The next chapter, they're not there. Just as the Red Demon wasn't in this one, they take breaks. But I think they come back. And I do think that last sound effect... That thing that Lynn Shea was looking at the wall, her expression was very much like when she was looking at the wall above comatose Dalton and saw the lipstick-faced demon. I think that that's what we're meant to think. Chapter 3, it's the wheelchair girl and lipstick face. She really shouldn't be afraid of the lipstick-faced demon because he was so easily defeated in the first movie. Come on. And you're giving Lynn Shea's acting a lot of credit that she was given the direction... I want you to make the face of shock that you just saw the lipstick face demon again and not look shocked, Lynn. <laughs> She's got one face and this is her scared look. You might be right. Maybe I'm certainly not going to give her too much credit. If I've been giving anybody any credit, let me please retract it right now. Well, there's not much suspense for me, but Marjorie Stewart, do you recommend Insidious Chapter 2, Marjorie? I'm going to have to say no. It was awful, confusing. They broke the rules. There were no rules at times. I think they copped out. And I think they this is not a good movie and you don't need to see it. Stuart. Yeah, the list of disappointments is never ending here. They forgot about major characters, both the demon and Dalton and really everybody. They chose familiar things to ape. It's, it's neither logical, which I could have forgiven. Believe me. The last one was ultimately a series of traps that did little more than say boo, but it's not scary. I mean, again, I go back to my mom. This is a silly movie. I don't know how anyone could be frightened about what they're watching here. To me, it was laughable. It's the kind of thing that they should have spent more time writing and developing. I feel like it was rushed. I wonder, I truly wonder, after the glow wears off and the hype over Friday the 13th, if people really are going to see this of the same piece as the first movie. To me, there's a stark difference between where they started and where they're at now. God help them, I think it can be saved. I think it can easily be saved. It can be better than Chapter 2. This is a pretty strong not recommend. And I am going to give this a weak recommend. I watched the first, I'd say, half of this movie. And I was intrigued, and I was a little creeped out, but it did feel like stuff we'd seen before last week that I didn't really like. And every so often, I kind of, when I'm watching a movie for now playing, go, hey, is this recommendable? And I realized at about the midway point that I absolutely just didn't care either way. Which way does apathy go? If you have absolutely no emotion about a movie at all, if you have no like nor dislike, if you sit there and go, it's a movie and it's a 100 minutes long, is that a recommend? No! <laughs> well, I was I was hemming and hawing about that. But then the movie got a little bit good when it started to reveal the Parker mystery. And as the Parker character came to the fore, I realized I like this Parker mystery. And I like the little time travel, back to the future, saw interplay they've got going on. It entertained me. It created a universe. It is just enough for me to say that this movie was entertaining and worth watching. But I stand by what I said at the beginning of this podcast. I don't think Insidious 2 stands alone at all. And so the real question, and I had to spend, I kid you not, two days of deep self-reflection. <laughs> asking myself, does the enjoyment of Insidious 2 make it worth it 
to watch both. If you have to watch both in order to get what you get out of Insidious 2, is it worth watching Insidious 1, which I didn't recommend, to get the little bit of joy out of Insidious 2? Does the not recommend of Insidious outweigh the recommend of Insidious 2? I really, I had to meditate, I had to seek spiritual guidance, but I finally, thanks to an excursion into the further where I met my spirit animal and we had a talk, no, I don't recommend the Insidious franchise. There's some fun to be had with Insidious 2, but right now, Insidious as a franchise, I still don't like it. Wow. Well, you know, we're almost in agreement here. I feel like they stumbled very badly, and it's a pretty common thing. They had a closed-end story. They didn't have anything worked out. They had a largely ambiguous, scary original movie that worked on a PG-13 level. Great. How do we build on this? This is not the way. Uh, They did a terrible job with the sequel. I would hope that wherever they pick up, it can be salvaged. Like I said, concentrate on the things I like. Maybe get a different writer. That's never going to happen, I know, because he's probably going to end up directing this thing. But (laughs) that's really where I think my problems have, for both films, bumped into. I think James Wan is a talented horror movie maker and maybe a good director in general. I hope so. But I do feel like he's only as good as the material he's given. And here, he's doing the same things he's been doing for a couple movies. This is a copy of a copy of a copy coming out so close in proximity to The Conjuring. If this is the direction they're headed, I don't want it. But I think it doesn't have to be. And I think because Juan isn't returning, and because maybe we are going to get an entirely different family, there is a chance for this thing. But I think it is a better standalone movie than it has potential for being a franchise. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm really scared the way Blumhouse cranks out films. When I said earlier this podcast, we're going to be back next September talking about Insidious 3. I wasn't joking. I really fear that they're going to rush this in. You say the same writer... Winnell did walk away from Saw, so depending what else he has going on, how bad he needs to make the mortgage, maybe he'll only act, or maybe he'll walk away from this one too. He did keep coming back for Saw to act as well. But yeah, Juan is gone, and I think what we're going to get is really generic. I am looking forward to seeing Juan next year with Fast and Furious 7, but... I am not looking forward to the time that we have to pick up the Insidious franchise again. But I am looking forward to talking about more cross-dressing killers this Friday. <laughs> Psycho 2! Yeah, I agree. I, I, it, it's a better than this. I can tell you that or straight up the bat. I'm not giving you any spoiler by telling you it's going to be much more of an interesting conversation than this was. Yeah, our Psycho Goal Level Donation Series is going on now. Psycho, the original Alfred Hitchcock masterpiece, went out to Gold Level donors last Friday. And you can get it right now by going to our homepage, clicking the banner at the top with all the details, and you will get an email within 24 hours that give you our Psycho review. You'll get an email per week for the next six weeks up to almost Halloween with a new Psycho review, six Psycho reviews in all. That is our gold level package. Plus, as a gold level donor, you also get our five Simon Pegg Nick Frost reviews. That's the Cornetto trilogy of Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's End, which is still playing in theaters. I could have seen that instead of this, and I wish I had. (laughs) As well as a couple extra one-offs, Paul, and Attack the Block. 
If you don't want to hear the Psycho films or you just don't have $25 to spend, you can hear this Peg Frost podcast, get them all in one nice package like a Netflix series for a donation of $10 or more. And we aren't selling these podcasts. These podcasts are made as a thank you to donors. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you enjoyed our Riddick podcasts, Superman, if you're looking forward to the upcoming Stephen King retrospective series, all of the costs to make these shows are paid for by the donors. 1% of our audience pays for 100% of our audience's enjoyment. And so the hope is that you enjoy this podcast enough to support it. And if you do during our donation drives, yes, we have for the silver level donors, five bonus podcasts. And for gold level donors, 11 bonus podcasts, including the Psycho series. And I agree Possibly some of the most interesting conversations we've ever had on Now Playing occurred on Psycho. Yeah, and everyone gets to hear Carrie. We're finally getting The King, a series that has been teased for most of this year. They're releasing the movie in four weeks, and so we're going to get started. Brian De Palma's 1976, Carrie, is going to be our show on Tuesday. Wait, wait, wait. Four weeks? Why are we starting Carrie now if it's four weeks away? <laughs> well, who could forget about the Rage Carrie 2 or Carrie 2002, the TV miniseries? All right, I will completely admit, going into this, I forgot about the TV miniseries. I remember the Rage <laughs> Carrie 2. You can't forget about TV, I swear. Almost every part of King's career, there is some bastardized TV version of any book that you love. I feel like we're going to be doing TV movies a lot, and I wonder if I'll like any of them. Who knows? I haven't seen it. Uh, we'll get to it. I'm open. I certainly want to revisit Brian De Palma Carey next week and see where they're going to go with the new movie. So we will be back next week with Carey. And now, leave this podcast! Leave this podcast! Leave this podcast now! Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You called me here, and I'm taking that as an acceptance of my readings. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Saw, Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. I might need some time alone to concentrate. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. I'll get on that this afternoon. I'll have to come too. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. What choice do I have? Gotta pay Dalton's bills. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Please help him, please. Now Playing's Insidious Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. They crave life. The chance to live again. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. It's the most important part of her process. Uh, That's debatable. It's not debatable. The Insidious films are the property of their copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. And do you really believe that would help? 
The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Why are you looking at me like that? You think I did this? Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Come on, let's get out of here. Watch it off the fan. Okay. If you need to record with your shirt off because it's hot, that's fine. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, you can use the pull over there. Yeah, bend over a little further. Yeah. My God, this thing exploded. Ha! That was you, asshole! <laughs> I don't know what that is, but it make me laugh. God, this thing blew up this... Was that I saw giant James? Was that I saw James Wan? Other what? And yeah, I think that if you named a horror series, you could probably trace some route back to this series. It's it's kind of a scrap heap of of a lot of things I've seen before. Leprechaun. <laughs> we haven't covered that one. I don't know. I I don't see any obvious comparatives. You got me there, but who knows? Did anyone have me gold in this? <laughs> I guess James Wan did all the way to the bank. So, but why do we need specs and what's his face? I Tucker. never get it right. Tucker. Yeah, we've seen everything from the Morton's fi- Salt Lady, and I know what you did last summer. When the Morton's Fisherman. The, oh, the Morton's Fisherman, and I know what you did last summer to the, the Morton's. Gordon's... Wait a minute, wait a minute. Gordon's Fisherman, Morton's Salt Girl, yeah. and the Rain Flicker. <laughs> to the Mor- which one is it, or is it both? It's both. To the okay. Morton's Salt Girl in Urban Legends, to or we play Hot and Hole. Tucker had to go back. He was being part. <laughs> These names. <laughs> uh. Every time I said Tucker earlier, I meant Carl. Mother f- <laughs> Carl. Carl. <laughs> Carl. 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 I don't think you said Tucker that much. Elise no. and Carl. Carl and Elise. Okay. I think every time we see Spax and... What's his name? Tucker. <laughs> My God, you guys! Come on! I cannot! I have a mental block But neither on that one name. of them is in that scene I'm talking about. No. No, they're there. No, they're, they're not, because they're no, in those Carl. 80s. It was Carl. It's Carl. Oh, God, you're right. Okay, well, never mind. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, okay. I mean, what's his name? Carl. Are we ready to get there? Yes. Are you kidding? I'm just there a half hour ago. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I'm, t- I'm mystically time-traveling to when I'm already done and taking <laughs> off the headphones. <laughs> and I am going to give this a weak recommend. You are not! Oh, yes, he is. <laughs> You do this on purpose. I don't. I really don't. You do. You do. I don't like red, but I like red too. I don't like insidious, but I like insidious too. You just do this to hurt me. I know you do. No, that's just why you recommend Superman Returns. <laughs> 
Touche. I guess it's uh, it's given back and forth in equal measure. Yeah, and someday we have to watch Valkyrie and review it just to see if there's any movie by him you won't recommend. But to oh. this movie. Oh, let me just interject there. Strong not recommend. Okay, because I didn't think after Superman. Si- I don't like Brian Singer. You, you could have fooled me. You recommended Superman Returns. I just figured you worshipped at his altar because no other explanation for that movie exists. <laughs> And I definitely went, I wouldn't go within a hundred feet of that Jack the Giant thing. <laughs> so, 